If you turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. We're continuing on in the book of John. Now we're moving into chapter 13. And we'll take the first 17 verses this morning. And as a quick way of review, if you remember John chapter 12, Jesus has come in under the triumphal entry and and the people have been waving palm branches, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, And I shared last week what Jesus does after he comes into the city, into Jerusalem, he goes right to the temple and he clears out the temple of the money changers. And Luke tells us that he begins to teach daily in the temple and the people begin to hang on his every word. Now, the triumphal entry happened on Sunday. Today's event is Thursday. This is the day he will be betrayed. This is actually the evening. And understand that these are kind of Jesus' final moments with his disciples. He's going to begin to to pour out to them. Understand, Israel has been judged as a nation. No longer do they have this opportunity, but the opportunity now is to turn, turn to Christ. And so Christ now, before He goes to cross, He he wants to minister to His disciples. And what He's going to do, He's going to to teach them a, a simple lesson, a simple lesson on humility. The Lord of glory is going to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this simple lesson, it packs a punch. And what I want us to do today is is I want us to look at it in kind of a practical way. I taught this lesson a number of years ago. I took a totally different approach then. But as I I worked through this text, a text jumped out at me. And I want you to look at it in your Bibles. It's chapter 13, verse 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do you want to have a blessed life? Do you want to have a life of blessing? God would pour out your blessing. Then know what I'm going to teach today and do it. Because there are going to be three practical keys on how to have a blessed life and what we see today. We're going to start with the first five verses. Let me read that to you. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. He got up from supper. He laid down his garments and taking up a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So what are the keys to a blessed life? First thing, have an attitude of humility and love. Have an attitude of love and humility. Jesus is going to demonstrate here not only his love for the disciples, but this humble heart The God of glory takes on flesh. And then He even Himself becomes a servant to them. What an example for us. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the word blessed in the Greek, it also means happy. Happy. I was talking to somebody on the street witnessing, and they said to me, I just want to have a happy life. Isn't that a common thing you hear in our day? I want to be happy 
kind of a hard thing to understand. So I said, I know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to key in to the Google. And I said, how to have a happy life. Guess how many hits I got? Over 94 million hits. No kidding. And so I just started to read some of them. Here's some of the things I read. Seven happiness habits. 103 ways to live a happy life. I read things like, how are you happy? Believe in yourself. Just smile. I know. Just think happy thoughts. How's that working for you? Right? Well, Jesus here, He's going to give us a prescription. He's going to give us keys on what it means to have a life that is blessed and a life that honors God. Now, the goal of this lesson is not so the disciples will be happy. No, the goal of this lesson for the disciples is that they will stay committed to the call that is on their life. Jesus knows this is it. In just a few hours, He's going to depart. He's going to be crucified, and He no longer will be with them. But the byproduct of living out your calling, trust me, it is a blessed life. Now, in verse 1, John tells us the setting. Look at it. He says, now before the feast of the Passover. This is the fast Passover time. This is Thursday evening. And the feast of the Passover was an annual Jewish, uh, regular annual Jewish festival that commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And the idea was, if you remember the story, you had the angel of death that the Israelites had been warned over that would come upon the people in Egypt. But the, the people of Israel had to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it over the doorpost in the form of a cross. And the angel of death would pass over them. Understand, this is the last Passover meal that Jesus will have with His disciples. But also understand, this is the last true Passover for God's people. No longer do people celebrate putting blood over a doorpost. Now they're going to celebrate the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. God is starting a new work, a new covenant. This is it. And it says here, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus had been telling the disciples time and time again, the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. Well, now is the hour. His hour has come. His hour to be glorified. His hour to go to the cross, to die, to rise again, and to ascend to heaven. That hour is now. And from a human point of view, this means suffering and death. But from God's point of view, it's glory. This is, this is what's been planned. Like I talked about last week, this is the purpose that Jesus came. He came to be humiliated. He came to die. And there is this deep love that resonates here in this passage from Jesus to His own. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. John tells us he, he loved them to the end. He uses a word there in the Greek. It's telos. That means end. It means perfection or completeness. It, it, it signals a, a God-like love, an agape love, a, a Holy Spirit love. And it's, it's, it's a love to the fullness, to the end. 
This is the love that Christ has for his own. This is the love that Christ has for me, for you. If you are his disciple, he loves you to the end, to the full, complete. This kind of love, it surpasses knowledge. It surpasses our understanding. And that kind of love has been put in you and me through the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen how Peter explains it, speaking of this love. Actually, it's Paul. He writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. He says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Jesus loves his own to the full, to the end. But it's displayed in humility. It is a love of one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet he displays that love as a humble servant. And everything that Jesus does and everything he's going to do through the rest of the book of John is is motivated out of this humble love this sacrificial love, this agape love, this willingness to to become low and to put others before himself. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I've seen people that aren't Christians have sacrificial love. It's true. People all the time love their family and others and sacrifice themselves for their loved ones. But as believers in Christ, we are commanded to love everyone that way, just as he loved us and not expect anything in return. I mean, our culture basically says, hey, you give to get, right? Well, I love you as long as you love me. But by Jesus' example that we'll see in a little bit, and by the Word of God, we know that we love in spite of how people treat us, even to the point of our enemies. This is a Christ-like love. This is an agape love. This is a love based on humility of heart and soul. And there's no way that we can do this without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But because we have the Holy Spirit, now we're able to love this way. But there's one thing that God has no love for, and that is Satan and his plans. Look at verse 2. It says, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Judas has rejected Christ's love for a love of self. Now, I've read different things where people say, oh, poor Judas. No, there's a contrast here. And what John is making sure we see is this great contrast between the brilliance of Christ's humility and his love and the darkness of Judas' pride and hatred for Jesus. Judas is in it for himself. That's world love, self-love, self-gratification. Get what you can get and get it now. This is not, as what, this is not what is being displayed by Jesus here. And we already know that Jesus has already sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He's already waiting for that moment. And we know that moment's going to be this night. This night, he will betray the Son of Glory. And the contrast between Christ's love and Judas' prideful heart, it's, it's just stark. But you have to understand something here. 
Not only did Judas have pride, but all of the disciples had pride as well. That very night, in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 24, as Jesus is preparing and they're, and they're ha- just beginning dinner, it says that, that a dispute rose among them at who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So the disciples start bickering, hey, I'm going to be more powerful than you, and I want the seat at the left, and I want the seat at the right, and they start bickering right before Jesus is going to wash their feet. This is the setting that we come into in this wonderful lesson that Jesus is going to humble himself and love to the disciples. This is the backdrop. And Jesus knows that his time has arrived. And he also knows where he's going. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Think about the depth of, the, of Jesus' humility here. The glorious ruler and creator of all is going to humble himself so low that he's going to wash the feet of a traitor, Judas. He's going to wash the feet of a denier, Peter's going to deny him three times. He's going to wash the feet of the bickering disciples who literally are going to desert him and leave him alone at the most crucial point of his life and his ministry. But he knows that God has put all things into his hands. Now, that speaks of his authority. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he knows where he comes from. He comes from God. That speaks of his divine origin. He is God in the flesh. It says, and he's going back to God. That speaks of future glory. He knows that he's going to rise. He knows that he will be at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and I. He knows that he's coming back. He will establish a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. Jesus displays love through humility. Now, washing people's feet in, in that day and era, it was always reserved for the lowest slave. The one who was the lowest slave got that job. He was the one that was supposed to be washing the feet. But in this instance, Jesus himself begins to wash the feet. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And when he poured water into the basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. So you have this contrast before us. You have Satan's way. You have the fleshly way. Satan's way is always personal advancement at the expense of others. It smacks of pride. It smacks of selfishness. And then you have Christ's way, God's way, the way of the Spirit, not of the flesh. It's a way of humility. It's a way of love. It's a way of selflessness, putting others before yourself, being willing to stoop low, to lift others higher. This is beautifully displayed in front of the disciples. As Jesus, he lays down his garments. It's a, it's a picture of Jesus, the, the second member of the triune Godhead, who lays down his glory to put on flesh for us. He humbled himself. He took the form of a bondservant. Now, Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And I think it's on the screen behind me. And this is what he said. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, God, humbles himself. He puts on flesh. He takes the form of a bondservant, of a slave. And then right here, he literally becomes the slave. I mean, what a picture of that. He becomes the one. He becomes the servant. He is washing the disciples' feet. He's going to wash the betrayer. He's going to wash the denier. He's going to wash those who scattered. And he washes us as well. Now, washing was a necessary custom in that day. Just think with me about a, a typical dinner that they would have. You understand that they're laying down typically on some cushions. And so your head's going to be next to somebody else's feet. And so, you know, you got sandals on, you're walking through the mud, walking through the dirt and, and all that, and you got stinky, dirty feet right next to you. What's the, the normal thing to do? What's the right thing to do when you enter into somebody's home? That they would wash your feet. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to do. But you know, Jesus talked about the, the greatest kind of love, and he, he, he shared with us what that is, and He says it in John 15, 13. Let me share that. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. How low will Jesus humble Himself all the way? Complete humiliation for us. And this whole event, it's like a parable of His ministry. One commentator I read, his name is Ray Stedman, he said this, he said, first, John tells us that Jesus rose from supper. He had already done in a far greater way when He rose from the throne of glory prior to His coming into the world. Second, He laid aside His garments. And we saw Paul said in Philippians 2 that when He came into the world, He emptied Himself and He laid aside glory so that He could appear as a true man. Third, He took a towel and He girded Himself. This was the garb of a servant. This is the role that Christ took for himself. And finally, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. In a few short hours, he's going to shed his own blood so that he can wash us of our sin. This whole event is a picture of his life, his death, his resurrection, of the ministry that Christ came to do, the humble servant that loved us to the end. Are you willing to be like our Lord? Humble. I read a really kind of a funny article. It was in the New York Times, and it's written by Karina Kakano. And this is what it's entitled, Calling Yourself Humbled Doesn't Sound As Humble As It Used To. And this is what she wrote. She said, humility is not what it used to be. As a matter of fact, it may be the exact opposite of what it used to mean. She said, lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received. And drive, diving at random into the internet and onto social media sites, we find this new humility everywhere. A soap opera star on tour is humbled by the outpouring and love of her fans. Comedians are humbled by the big laughs they receive. Athletes are humbled by the good day they had on the field. 
Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and their own holiday spirit. And yet, none of these people sound very humble at all. On the contrary, they are all exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility and to advertise their own status, success, generosity, moral superiority, and their good luck. And she finishes with these words. She goes, when did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? That is world love. That is the way the world does it, business. Hey, look at me. I want more. It's about me, right? I just want to be happy. This is not Christ-like love. This is not Christ-like humility. Where you humble yourself before others and you sacrificially serve them. So what are the keys to a blessed life? First one, have an attitude of love and humility. There's a second one, second key, live out your salvation. Live out your salvation. Live out who you are. You have been changed. You have been transformed. You have been born again. You are a new creation. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Look at verses 6 through 11. So he came to Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, not all of you are clean. So you have here, Jesus is beginning to wash their feet. And he's kind of probably working his way again down the line of the disciples. And I don't know how they receded or how it was. But he gets to Peter, right? I love Peter. Because he, he just reacts. It's kind of the way he's built. He reacts emotionally. You know, foot and mouth syndrome with Peter, it is his style. Right? He, he says just what's right there. And, and, and so Jesus, he's working his way there. He, he's, he's trying to show them. He, he's trying to, to teach them. Now, they all understand at this point that, that one of them should be the one that's supposed to be washing the feet. They get it. I think they're a little embarrassed. I think they're, they're kind of like, man, I mean, the Lord, he, he's washing our feet. And, and I think that's where Peter's at. And so, you know, of course, Peter, he basically says, Lord you wash my feet? You know, he understands. He, he gets it. No, you're the Lord. I should be washing your feet. And you think, well, that's really humble. But then he tries to tell Jesus what he should not do, doesn't he? <laughs> right? He starts to speak down to Jesus. Now, Peter knows who Jesus is. He understands that he is the Christ. He's already said it in Matthew 16. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And he even said, I mean, where else are we going to go? So he understands the reality of who he is. He doesn't really, I think, at this point, and the disciples didn't, the reality of what the Christ came to do. They're still kind of in their mind thinking that Jesus came to be this, this one who would overthrow Rome to plant a kingdom now. I think it's still in their minds. They don't get it that what Jesus is telling them by this very act of, of bowing down and washing their feet is humiliation. 
I mean, he's going to bow down low all the way to the cross. In verse 7, Jesus says, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Basically, Peter, you don't get it yet, but after I've been crucified, after I've been lifted high, you're going to get it. Later, it's all going to come together for you. You're going to understand. And so, Peter's response is even more dramatic. Look at verse 8 again. He says, Never, never will you wash my feet. When you look at that in the Greek, it's really interesting. It is in the strongest negation that you can make it. It's like, never, ever, no how, no way will you ever, ever, ever wash my feet. He takes a hard stand with Jesus. What I love is Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you can have no part of me. (laughs) Simple response. And then Peter, what does he do, right? Verse 9, well, then, Lord, wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. I mean, What was the change? Where did that come from? Well, first of all, I think Peter has the right heart. I think he understands it, that he wants a relationship. Whatever this relationship with Jesus is, he wants it so he's in, even though we know in a few hours he's going to deny him three times. But Jesus is beginning to lay out for him the truth of what it means to have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes on farther, and He wants him to understand the spiritual ramifications. So look at verse 10. Jesus says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. So He's kind of using the physical to explain the spiritual. Now, the physical is easy, right? Hey, if you had a bath and you put on a pair of sandals, but you happen to walk on a dusty road, what do you need to do? Hey, just wash your feet. You don't need another bath. But how does that translate into the spiritual? Well, the idea is this, is that we need to be cleansed. In the same way, if, if, you've, if you've had the bath, then, then you're clean. The same way, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've been cleansed by Him, it's a one-time act. You've been justified in Him now, done, finished work, once for all. Now, is there a daily cleansing? Yes, it's a coming back to Him regularly, confessing your sin, walking with Him in fellowship. Yes, I get that. But He says to Peter, you're clean. You've been washed. Clean by the blood of Christ. This work that Jesus does is final. It's a a full work. Now, 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that you know, I love 1 Corinthians 6 because it kind of gives the contrast. It gives the, what we look like as a sinner in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. But verse 11 kind of talks about this new life we have and how we're washed and clean. Let me read that for you. 1 Corinthians six eleven says, Such were some of you, that is, deep in your sin, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you know Jesus, you've been washed. You've been justified. That means declared righteous. You've been sanctified, set apart for Him. You're out. You're good. It's done. The daily stuff is we, we come back to Him regularly and ask for His forgiveness. There's a complete cleansing that happens in Jesus. It's a finished work. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. It says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He says, 
We made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That means on the cross, Jesus took our sin. It was laid upon him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are credited his righteousness. We're given the gift. We're declared righteous even though we're not. It's, I call it the win-win. He takes our sin and we're credited his life. So he, he says to Peter, you are clean, Peter. Ah, but there's one who's not. Look at verses 10 and 11. But not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. The one who's betraying him is Judas. And he understands that Judas does not believe. He, he, he doesn't have faith in Christ. He's not trusting that Christ is the one who would pay for the penalty of his sin. And this is not news to Jesus. He knows this. He's known this for a long time. In John chapter 6, verse 70, he said, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet, one of you is a devil. He knew this. He saw this day. And what I love about, actually, the beauty of this, do you understand that this was all in God's plan? That Satan always wants to thwart what God is doing. He wants to stop it. But God just calculates those things in. God understood that Judas would be there. He understood that he would reject Christ. He understood that he would betray. And it was part of the plan that Jesus would come and die on a cross. God already knew this. It was part of this. But this whole demonstration of foot washing, it serves as an example of salvation. To be cleansed. If you've been redeemed in Christ then you are called to now live it out. If you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, if, if you've been washed clean, if you've been redeemed, however you want to put it, born again, if you've been justified, now we are called to, to live it out. Remember verse 17? Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do what? If you know that you have salvation, you are blessed if you live it out. If you do it, if you live out who you are. And I think one of the best sections of Scripture that speaks, how do we do that? I mean, how do I live out my salvation with fear and trembling? Peter just makes it crystal clear in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to have it on the screen behind me because I'm going to walk this through with you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 says this, but also for this very reason giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been redeemed in Jesus, then you're called by Him to live out your salvation. How do we do that? First, be diligent to add to your faith in Christ virtue. Virtue. Now, this is a word that's no longer really understood very well in our culture, but what virtue means is goodness, integrity, purity. It means to honor the Lord with your mind, with your body, by your actions. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Be pure in heart and soul, not perfect, leaning on the strength of the Holy Spirit. But be a person of virtue, and then add to your virtue knowledge. Now, knowledge is good. Biblical knowledge is better. Study the Word of God. Show yourself approved. 
Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. Let the word sink down in you deeply. Add to your virtue knowledge, knowledge of the word. The beginning of knowledge is wisdom, the Bible says. Where do we get wisdom? From the word of God. Virtue, knowledge. And then he says, add to knowledge self-control. What's the opposite of self-control? Out of control, right? No, self-control. Controlled by the work of the Spirit. Ask God to help you control your anger, control your jealousy, control your lust. Be God-honoring in the way that you act. Add to your self-control what? Perseverance. Hang in there. (laughs) Fight the good fight. Take a stand. Man up. Persevere. Trust. Then he says, add to perseverance godliness. What does that mean? Holiness. Holy living. When that porn site comes up, you turn it off. You put software on your computer. When you've been talking about people behind their back, you confess it and you don't do it again. You begin to say, Lord, I want to honor you with holy living, godliness, a life that is God-honoring. And add to godliness, brotherly kindness. Do you know that kindness leads to repentance? Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle, kind answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, it stirs up anger. Are you known for your kindness or your harshness? And then you add to your brotherly kindness, love, full circle, back, agape love, other-oriented love. If you want to understand how to, how to live out your salvation, run to Second Peter. Live it out. Because Jesus, what happens here, Peter says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Do them. If you know them, do them. Now, A.W. Tozer, he speaks about what a Christian looks like. I don't know if any of you like to read Tozer, but I do. But this is what he says a Christian looks like. He says a real Christian is odd. He feels supreme love for the one he's never seen, and he talks every day to somebody he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, and he empties himself in order to be full. He admits when he is wrong so he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, and happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away that which he knows he cannot keep. And he sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, knows that which passes all understanding. A real Christian lives a life that is a reflection of his master. Two keys to a blessed life. Have an attitude of love and humility. Live out our salvation. Here's the last one. Serve the Lord sacrificially. Serve the Lord sacrificially. Saying, Lord, you've set the example for me. Now, can I just follow that example? Look at verses 12 through 17. It says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I think the question for us is, have we learned this lesson? Jesus wants us to understand that more than anything, we're His. And He gave the example as being a servant overall, and how much more should we live out that example? Now, He says in 13 and 14, you call me teacher and Lord, you are right, so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He said, hey, if I'm setting this example for you, if I'm willing to live out one who is humble and low as a servant, and I am the Lord of all eternity, and I come to you and do that, how much more should you, my servant, be willing to do that for someone else? Are you willing Verses 15 and 16, he kind of drives this home. He says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. And truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than a master, nor one who sent him greater than the one who sent him. It's just simple. He's saying, look, I've set the standard. I set the example. I humbled myself. Now you humble yourself. You be a servant to all. I just want to give you some practical applications on what this might look like here in a setting in Orange County, 2017. We're to care for those who can't care for themselves. This could be a parent or a loved one who's struggling. This could be the poor or the orphan or the widow or the divorced single mom. This could be to stand for the rights of the unborn, to fight against abortion. It could be any of that. We care for those who can't care for themselves. We're to get close to those who are suffering. We have many people in this church that have been in the hospital, have had surgeries, things like that. And, and i got to tell you, our church is a loving church. We do a wonderful job of reaching out and making meals and letting them know that they're loved. But are you part of that? Do you know people that are hurting and suffering? And i got to tell you, even if you're suffering, some of the best ways to get past that is to help another. And you'll find that your spirit, it's lifted. How about serving the Lord in His church? in His church. You understand God had a plan. It's called plan A. There is no plan B. It's called the church. That's it. How has He gifted you? For some of you, it might be you have the ability to play music, but you're holding back for some reason. Maybe some of you can sing, and nobody knows it, but you know it, but you've never served the Lord in that way. There's a little cute little baby boy sitting up here. Can you change a diaper? Can you love a little one? Is there something the way that God has made you that you've been holding back, serve Him. Be humble. Humble yourself. Give of yourself. Not only that, give. Be sacrificial in it. Don't make excuses. God is the one who has given us everything. How could we not give back? Why do we hold back? What are you afraid of? Is it a faith issue? Are you afraid to give to the work of the Lord? Do you understand He gave you everything? Not only that, open our homes to the lonely. Be someone who's willing to, to show kindness and invite them over for a dinner. Above all, don't try to take the first place. Don't try to get recognition. I was talking to Karen she had visited another church the other day, and she said literally in the parking lot, there were people's names of the biggest givers in the church, and they had special parking places. You don't want that. You don't want that. Be a humble servant. Be one who serves. 
Because there's a promise here. If we know it and do it, you'll be blessed. I'm going to share with you just a, in a final way to close this is a story. And I was talking to Pastor Brian this past Thursday about a man who, who was used by God greatly, but he was just a humble, simple man. And it's spoken of by a, a pastor who's a pastor in London. Let me just read it to you. It says, this all started a number of years ago in a Baptist church in South London on Sunday morning service was closing and a man stood up in the back and he raised his hand and he said, excuse me, pastor, can I share a short testimony? And the pastor, he looks at his watch and just like Pastor Neil, he says, you got two minutes, right? (laughs) And so this young man begins to share. He says, I just moved into the area and I used to live in Sydney, Australia. And a few months back, I was visiting some relatives And I was walking down George Street in Sydney, Australia, when all of a sudden, a little white-haired man, he stepped out from a shop doorway, and he handed me a pamphlet, and he said to me, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? Well, I was absolutely astounded. I'd never been asked that before, and I thanked him for the pamphlet. But when I got back home, I called a friend, and thank God he was a Christian. And he explained to me what it meant to know Jesus, and he said, I became a Christian. And everybody in the church just started clapping and welcoming them into the fellowship. Well, the pastor, two weeks later, he's doing a preaching series, and he goes to Adelaide, Australia, in this preaching series. And and at the end of a three-day series, a a woman comes up for some counseling, and and so he wants to make sure that she's a Christian. And so he, he asks her, he says, how did you get saved? And the woman says, well, I used to live in Sydney. And a couple months back, I was visiting some friends doing the last minute shopping, and I was on George Street. And this strange little white-haired man, he stepped out of a shop of a doorway and he put a pamphlet into my hand and he asked me a question. He said, excuse me, man, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? Well, I was so disturbed by that question that when I got back home to Adelaide, I went to the church at the end of the street and I talked to the pastor and he led me to Christ. So yes, I'm a Christian. Well, now this pastor from London, he's beginning to think, wait a minute, in two weeks, I've talked to two different people about this white-haired man in Sydney, Australia. Well, he had to preach a few months later in a church in Pleasant Church in Perth, Australia. And there was a senior elder there after he had finished the series that took him out to dinner. And he asked the elder, so how did you come to know Christ? And he says, well, I've been in this church since I was 15. And I've just kind of worked my way up into leadership. I'm very good at business. He says, I was in a business trip in Sydney three years ago. And then I went to this place called George Street, And there was this obnoxious little white-haired man that came up to me and he put a pamphlet into my hand and he said to me, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? Well, I was so angry by that. And when I got back home, I went to the pastor and said, can you believe it? And the pastor says, I don't think you're saved. And he led me to Christ. Well, a number of months later, the London preacher, he flew to Atlanta, Georgia to speak at a naval chaplain convention. He spoke to over a thousand chaplains. And the person who's in charge of that chaplaincy, over a thousand chaplains, he asked him, how are you saved? About 20 years ago, I was in the military. I was on a naval battleship, and I I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney, the harbor for replenishments. Well, we hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I was blind drunk, and I got on a wrong bus. I got off at George Street, and I thought I saw a ghost, a a white-haired man jumped in front of me, put a pamphlet in my hand. He said, hey, sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? 
And the fear of God hit me immediately. And I was awakened and totally sober, and I ran back to the ship. I talked to my chaplain, and he led me to Christ. And now, from the ministry, I oversee a thousand chaplains. A number of months after that, the London pastor, he flew to a conference of more than 5,000 Indian missionaries, and the exact same thing happened. The missionary happened years earlier to be on George Street. And a little white-haired man handed him a pamphlet and said, Sir, are you saved? Well, at the end, this London pastor, he ends up in Sydney doing a preaching series. And he's talking to the pastor of the church, and he says, Have you ever heard about this little white-haired man that's on George Street? And he goes, Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know him. That's Frank Jenner. He's no longer able to do that. He's been very ill. And so he made arrangements two nights later to to reach out to Frank Jenner. And he knocked on the door, and this little white-haired man, old and feeble now, opened the door, made tea for them. He couldn't even hold the teacup he shook so bad. And this London pastor began to share with him all these experiences that he'd had over these past three years. I mean, a number of people had come to Christ through this man's ministry, and this man just wept as he heard all that God had done. This is what he said. He told him his story. He said, I was on an Australian warship and I was having a life full of sin. And in a crisis, I had hit the wall. And one of my colleagues, he says, I was giving him literal hell, but he loved me. And he shared Christ with me and I became a Christian. And I was so grateful to God that I promised God that I would serve him for the rest of my life. And I made a commitment that I would tell 10 people a day something about Jesus And he said, I've had times that I've been sick and not able to do it, but other times where I made it up. And so for 40 years now, I've been telling people about Jesus. But this is the first time that I've heard anyone has come to Christ. And he wept. I think he understands the idea about being a servant. And I wonder how many more people had come to Christ through his ministry that he never knew about. And I would say in this life, he was blessed. But can you imagine when he stands before God in heaven, the reward, the glory? Do you want to have a blessed life? Three things. Have an attitude of love and humility. Live out your salvation. Serve the Lord sacrificially. Amen? Amen. Well, I can have Rob come forward. I want to do something just a little bit different this morning. I'm going to have Rob kind of get, get ready, and, and I'm going to take just a minute, and I want us just to be quiet with maybe a little music in the background, and I want us to bow our heads, and I want us just to reflect on our Christian life. Jesus has given us the prescription. He's given us keys on, on what it means to have a blessed life. Do you love others? Are you humble? He, Jesus is, is trying to show them what it means to have this life that is blessed. And I'd like us just to take a moment to say, Lord, am I, am I a sacrificial servant of yours? So let's bow our heads. And just before the Lord in quietness of heart, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Let's bow our heads before God. Rob.
Well, Father, this morning we, we turn our hearts to you. And Lord, this example that Jesus has laid out for us, this example to, to do, to, to live out love and humility towards others, Lord, to help us to, to live out a, a holy life before you, to, to be a servant of all, Lord. Lord, we confess that in our own ability, we fall way short. But through the work of your spirit and by the strength of your might, would you help us, Lord, be maybe like that little white-haired man who's just faithful to the end. Show us, Lord, how to live a God-honoring life for the kingdom's sake, not for our sake, that you would receive the glory. Jesus' name.